morning, everyone. Sometimes I'm just so happy to be here, and uh, this is one of those mornings. I hope you feel that way, too. Thank you so much, Joe, for leading us, and Kayla for being here uh, as well. I want to take us back to 1812 this morning. Uh, there was a pretty big war that happened that year. I can't remember what it was called, um, <laughs> but Napoleon who at that time was a dominant force in Europe, commanded an enormous army made up of 650,000 Frenchmen, which he called his Grand Armée. And he took them into an invasion of the much weaker Russia in the north. And Napoleon fought his way all the way to Moscow, and he took the city on September 14th of 1812. And it was a very impressive victory at the time. But... Only a few weeks later, things turned south. And I mean, literally, things turned south. Napoleon was forced to retreat, and it turned out that it was one of the worst military defeats in all of history. In fact, by the time he escaped out of the uh, borders of Russia, his grand armée had turned into a rather puny armée, and only 27,000 healthy troops returned. That is less than 5% of his force. So historians have asked the question for a long time, how on earth did Napoleon lose? And basically what it all comes down to was this. The main reason for his defeat was that he ran out of resources. Uh, in Moscow, his men became hungry and cold and sick, and he was fresh out of the supplies that he needed to prevent it. So, in spite of the size and the strength and the power of Napoleon's forces, he lost the war because he had not adequately guarded his supply line. Now, this morning, I want to pick right back up this week where I left off last week. We're in the middle of a three-week series answering a question that came in on one of these comment cards a couple of months ago. The person said, could you please include in a future sermon what discipleship is? What is a life of discipleship, and, and what does that look like? And what we saw last week is that the basic definition of a disciple to answer this person's question is a learner. A Christian discipleship involves seeking to learn from Jesus, first of all, and then to take what we've learned and to pattern our lives after his. And in Mark chapter 12, we saw last week that Jesus told us that the most important thing that we can do with our lives is to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. God is to be our highest priority, and, and he's to be the deepest love of our lives. And, and God deserves this fully, most especially in light of all that he's done in sending his one and only precious son to come to the cross to die in our place for those who have believed to rescue us from our sins. And so our highest joy and our deepest sense of security and our daily attention in life should be moving towards being attuned uh, towards him. So we looked at that last week, but we also saw how incredibly difficult it is for us to live this way. 
how hard it is to love God like that because in our hearts and lives, God has a lot of competition. There are other people and things that are constantly vying to steal that number one position away from God. And and our hearts are so easily drawn away from him. Well, what should we do about this? Last week, we looked at Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us that what we should do is we should fight. We should fight to keep God as the first priority in our lives. We should fight to keep our love for him from growing distant and cold. And we should fight to order our priorities in such a way that we put first things first. Discipleship is war. There's no other way to say it. Discipleship is war, and it's a war that we fight every day to win or to lose on the battlegrounds inside of our heart. Sometimes uh, discipleship involves difficult choices and, and meaningful sacrifices, but the struggle to keep God first is the most worthwhile and meaningful thing that we can do with our lives. But what I want to do today is I want to show us, in light of that war that we talked about last week, how we might have a fighting chance of winning. And there's only one way to win the war. Fortunately, it's not very complicated at all. And it is this. You've got to guard your supply line. In this war, above all else, you've got to guide your supply line. You've got to somehow keep from making the same tactical mistake that Napoleon did. Because if you can maintain your resources, if you can keep from becoming spiritually hungry and cold and sick, then the war can be won. Discipleship is a war of supply. Uh, That's it. That's the key. And I really believe with all my heart that the primary responsibility of a disciple is to guard that line above any cost. So let me show you what I mean. Turn back again, if you could, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Uh, John 15 makes up uh, a part of what's called Jesus' farewell discourse. And it comes at the end of his three years of ministry and, and happens right before he goes to the cross. And the reason that they call it the farewell discord is because it's in this place that Jesus is saying goodbye to his friends. Okay, this is a very sad, very emotional, very uh, powerful and meaningful part of the Bible. And so what we have recorded for us in John chapter 15 is some of Jesus' final precious words. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to focus on the last two verses that we looked at, verses 4 and 5. So if you could look at those again, let's read those. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now what we find at the beginning of John chapter 15 is that Jesus is making this analogy. And you can look on the screen behind me, Gina, if you could put that slide on. In the analogy, God the Father is like a vine dresser, or he's like a gardener who takes care of a vine. 
And Jesus is like that vine. Okay, you can think of Jesus. Do you see the big stump in the, in the vine there, the, the main artery of that vine? That's like Jesus. And God says, Jesus' purpose in our lives is to grow good and ripe and healthy fruit for the gardener. Now, Jesus' people, his followers, his disciples, Jesus says, are like the branches that are attached and shoot off of the main artery of the vine. Do you see those in the picture there too? And just as between a real vine and a branch, there's an organic living connection uh, between this actual vine and, and its branches, which allows the sustaining nutrients and life to pass from one to the other, Jesus says, so it is with Christ. The, the life and health and nutrients that we need, only he has. And we only receive it by the means of our connection and attachment to him. So what this is saying is something really simple, that spiritually speaking, Jesus keeps us alive. For for his people, Jesus keeps them alive. He feeds them. He provides for their needs. He enables them to be strong and, and healthy. And not only that, but out of that strength and health, he makes them fruitful. They produce good fruit like this. Our lives are are productive and useful and significant as a result of him supplying all of these provisions for us that we need to be healthy and to survive and thrive. Now, we, like a real branch, Jesus goes on to say, are only as strong and healthy as our connection is to the vine. Uh, Apart from the vine, a branch is is useless. It it can't survive. It it depends totally on the vine. And likewise, Jesus says here, he he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, And so, since we are useless without the vine, there's one critical role that Jesus tells us to play. Our part, he says, essential above everything else is to abide. Jesus tells us that's the thing that we're to do. We are to abide. What it means to abide is it means to stay. It means to stay right there. It means to remain connected. Abiding means not wandering off. It's not losing our attachment, but abiding is clinging closely and dependently as if life itself depends on it. And abiding in Christ is how we win the war. That vine is our supply line. And if our connection to that line is at risk, then so are we. Now, why is it that we can all kind of understand this in our heads, and and for most of us, we can see that as the ideal, and yet we still have this tendency to drift away? Why is it that when Jesus says, I want you to stay right here with me, we tend to constantly drift in the other direction? Why is it so hard to abide? Well, last week, I talked about those things that pull us away and distract us from God. This morning, I want to talk about two things that are a little bit different than that. These are two fears that oftentimes I find that God's people have that keep them from sticking close to him. 
I want to think about these two things uh, this morning for just a few minutes. Then what I want to do is I want to get really specific. What does it look like to abide? And then I'm going to give a real short practical application at, uh, at the end. So let me first of all talk about two reasons I think that people have a tendency not to abide. And both of them are fears. And the first is this. I think that some people deep down don't really believe that God accepts them. I think that's a struggle for a lot of people. They feel uncomfortable walking closely with God because they, they don't feel worthy of that. And what they figure is that having a close, daily, rich, helpful, nurturing relationship with Christ is something for people who are more spiritual than they are, people who are further down the line, because they look at themselves and, and they think, I am too stinking weak and needy for that. But what I want to show you this morning, if you have that fear, is that this passage totally shoots that idea down. It devastates it. First of all, this passage tells us that God expects that we are going to be dependent on him, not independent from him. That the the life of discipleship by design is a life of daily dependence. And, And what this means is something incredible. It means that God expects that you will be weak and needy. God expects that you will be imperfect. God expects that there's going to be times, maybe a lot of them, that you're going to be tired and a little grouchy. God expects you to be flawed. And not only that, but but this, I believe, is the most wonderful news in the whole world. God can accept imperfect people. God can accept imperfect people. God can accept people who fail and who struggle and who aren't really doing okay. God can accept people whose hearts are broken or people who are wrestling with anger. He he can accept hurt people and he can accept people who have hurt others. God can accept people who are having trouble trusting him. He can accept scared people and ashamed people and people who just did something really stupid. He can accept people who are full of regrets. God can accept anyone. And the reason that he can accept anyone is not just that he's a nice guy, even though he is such a good, loving, kind, gracious God. He can accept people because he's made a way for those people to be accepted. He's made a way through Jesus Christ, his own son, so that rather than face God's judgment and just give them a cold shoulder, what God can do is he can pour out his grace and his mercy and and actual tangible meaningful help into people whose lives are all tangled up. And he can do this because for those people who've believed the gospel, right? For those people who've trusted that Jesus has forgiven their sins through his death on the cross, all of the judgment, 100% and nothing less, that God deserves to pour out onto that person has been poured out instead and soaked up and atoned for on the cross by Jesus Christ himself so that there is none of it left, not a drop. Jesus takes every drop. And what this means is that for a child of God, what we can do is something that is incredibly freeing and and wonderful. We can bring 
who we really are to God. We can bring him our messy selves, no matter how messy and ugly and unpleasant that ugliness might seem. God expects us to be needy and dependent on him. And in fact, those are the only kind of people that Jesus will accept. Jesus only accepts messy people. People who think they have it all together, they don't really need him. And they need not apply, right? First, John says, if we say that we have no sin, right? If we say that we've got it all together, he says, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he goes on to say, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. If, If you feel in your heart that, yeah, you, you experienced that attachment to the vine, but you, you've kind of drifted away. You know, you're, you're living a detached life, so to speak. I just want you to know the great news that God has provided for you a way to come back home. He's made a path for you so that you can abide again. And he says that when we come to him and confess our sins, right? That doesn't just mean when we say the magic formula. That means when we come to God repentant and and with genuine hearts that are sorry for what we've done, it says that he is faithful and just and he will always forgive us from those sins, first of all, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he takes us in our failure, we confess it to him, and he's faithful to cleanse us so that we can start all over again with a totally clean slate. I think some people are afraid to walk with God because they just don't think that's possible. They just feel too dirty. They they feel that they can't be accepted by him. But now, if we do have that that clean slate, if we are accepted by him, then you know what we can do? We can enjoy him. We can enjoy him. We can receive his renewal and equipping and strengthening. And and now he can freely move in our lives to change us and to mature us, uh, sometimes to comfort us, sometimes to confront us so that good fruit can be produced in our lives. God is such a father to us. He, He accepts us exactly as we are, as we ought to do with our children, those of us who have them. But out of that loving acceptance, what he does is he helps us to change. He doesn't just pat us on the head and say, okay, good, you can stay that way. I don't care. He loves us enough to say, I accept you, but I also want to produce within you something better. And his life is is the means by which that happens. The idea that we have to clean ourselves up before we can come to God is such a terrible lie. It's such a horrible lie that we're all tempted to believe. When when we say to ourselves, you know, I probably really should pray right now, but I just don't feel good enough. Or when we say, you know, I'm not coming to church this morning because I feel so distanced from God. I, I don't believe, I don't deserve to be in one of those seats. When we say things like that, we have missed something so important. Because according to this, that's exactly the time we should do those things. We ought to bring our our need to God, not keep it from him. That's the point. Some people struggle to abide because they don't really believe that God can accept them. 
And yet the promise through Jesus is that he can. But other people, I believe, they, they have fear and they kind of stay away from God, not because they believe that he doesn't accept them, but because they believe that God doesn't really want them. I think a lot of people believe that they're not really wanted by God. Here's what I mean by that. I'll, I'll give you a little illustration. Uh, the other day, I took my four-year-old daughter, Emma, to Milford. She loves the waterfall that's behind the Starbucks. You ever go to that waterfall? It's, it's pretty cool. She likes it, and, and so we were there, and she was just so happy and excited and just chatting away, yakking excitedly, and uh, it just brought me joy, and I, I turned to my daughter. I got down on my knees, and I put my hands on her shoulder, and I said, Emma, I really love you. With all my heart, I said it, and and you know what she said back to me? She said, yeah, Dad, I know. <laughs> She's four, okay? She's not supposed to do that when you're four. She was like, yeah, that's cute, Dad. I get it. Back to the waterfall. And um, I was just sort of struck by that. You know, the one thing that I have found with my kids is that sometimes it's more powerful for me to tell my children that I like them than it is for me to tell them that I love them. Sometimes, for whatever reason, that connects more with them. And I've thought about that a little bit. And, and I think sometimes it's that way with me, too. If, if a person tells me that they love me, that, that for whatever reason, sometimes it means more if they tell me that they like me. And, and the reason that I think that is is that love can feel like a job or like a duty, right? When I tell my children that I love them, sometimes they can feel like I'm obligated to love them because I'm their dad, and that's what dads do, and every dad loves their children. But liking someone is more of a, of a choice. It's a non-compulsory decision that a person makes, right? We're, we're expected to love everyone. The Bible tells you to love every single person that you, that you meet, to act in love. But it doesn't tell you that you have to like them. And the reason is you can't control the people that you like, right? You either like them or you don't. You can control whether you love them, but you can't control whether you like them. And what happens when you love a person is that over time, usually you start to like them too, right? I'm guessing that some of you believe that God loves you because it's his job. I'm guessing that some of you believe that God loves you because he's obligated to do so as the king of heaven. But do you believe that God likes you? Do you believe that God really genuinely wants you from his heart, from the richness of his heart? Do you believe that God's heart is filled with sincere joy for you? Do you believe that, that when you abide with Christ, when you walk with him, that that makes God happy? My experience is that most Christians are absolutely not convinced that this is true. Most think of themselves as being disappointing to God, that God merely tolerates them and he puts up with them only because he's obligated to out of this sense of love. And so when Jesus says here, I want you to abide, I want you to stay close with me, I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want you to drift off. I want you right next to me. 
think it's hard for them to appreciate the, the warmth and, and just the sense of tender endearness that lies underneath that invitation. Now, how do I know that God feels that way about his people? Well, one of the best ways to really see this, you, you really see it throughout the scriptures, but one of the best places to go is actually the Psalms. The Psalms are like the evidence that God doesn't just like his people, love his people, but he likes them too. And I just really quickly want to take you to one example in Psalm 17. You're welcome to turn there, but if you don't want to, you can just listen to me. I'm going to read just verses 6 through 8. And uh, I want you to know that this psalm was written by a man whose name was David, who was a king of Israel. So I'll, I'll just read you know, these three verses This is David's prayer. It was made into a song. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, do you see what David just did there? He just called himself the apple of God's eye. Would you ever call yourself the apple of God's eye? Would you ever say that? God, I'm here. The apple of your eye is here. Would you ever do that? How can David do that? Especially because this is the same David who lied terribly and committed adultery in one of the grossest sins in the Old Testament. In fact, to cover up his adultery, he murdered somebody. If there was a person who had a very messy, very ugly, very disappointing life, at least at that time, David was the guy. But you know what makes David stand out in all of the scripture is even though that was true about David, he just kept bringing his heart back to God time and time again. And the reason that he did that, I believe, is because David knew that God's love for him was more than just toleration. In spite of all of his unpleasant qualities, which he was aware of, he calls himself the apple of God's eye. This is an amazing statement. Uh, Back at that time, the the pupil of the eye was thought to look like an an apple. Uh, You can check it out. Stare into the eye of somebody. Don't do it now, but do it later. And it, it apparently looks like an apple. And because vision is so important, particularly back then, you didn't want to lose your vision, the pupil was held to be extremely valuable. And so when David calls himself the apple of God's eye, he's believing that he himself is extremely valuable and precious to God. And that God finds within himself joy for David. And let me tell you, He finds that joy in you too. God does not just like you. Excuse me. God does not just love you with some obligated love. He likes you too. He wants you. He's happy about you. God does not think any less, not even one slight degree of any of his children than he thought of David. And you need to know that. You need to believe that. And you need to believe that when Jesus calls you to abide, it is from a God who who takes joy in you. Now, the big idea in all of this, just to back up a little bit, is that discipleship is 
consisting of dependency. Right? That's my second big idea tonight, that, that a disciple is simply a, a dependent Christian. And, and, and we can feel welcomed into that dependency because God has made a way for us to do so through his son Jesus so that not only can we be accepted by God, even as flawed human beings, but we can come to God as people who are precious to him. We can come to God as people who really matter to him. He likes us, as Sally Field said. He really likes us. Now, let me move on to some practical issues. What is it that this dependency looks like? Okay, what, is it, what does it mean to ab- ab- abide? What are we supposed to do? Well, a lot of times when we ask questions like this, when we read a passage, if you just read a little more, it answers that question. And in John chapter 15, the same thing happens. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay, remember, there's that that learner issue again. We learn from what he did with his father. We apply that now uh, to ourselves. So the process of abiding involves keeping God's commands. You might call that obedience. I want you to notice something about this that's very, very important. He says, if you keep my commands, keeping my commands is not just a thought that we have in our heads, right? What is it? It's an action, right? This is a verb. This is very important. Abiding does not just involve something then that we're to know. It involves something that we're to do, something that we're to to live out. And we can know that we're abiding as we grow more obedient to God. But even in this action of being more obedient to God, that action, Jesus says here, is empowered by something. What's it empowered by? The vine, right? It's empowered by the energy and the life that's supplied to us by the vine. So let's get even more specific. What does abiding look like? Well, the the place that abiding starts, kind of the platform for abiding, is in a category which some people have called spiritual disciplines. How many of you have ever heard the word spiritual disciplines before? Okay, some of you have. Isn't it a fun word? It doesn't sound like fun. It's got the worst name because it doesn't sound like fun. Other people, instead of calling these things spiritual disciplines, they've called habits of grace. These are habits that we build to enjoy God's grace. The the name isn't very good even there. Maybe somebody can come up with a better name. But I will say this. Spiritual disciplines are one of the most wonderful, joyful, helpful things that you will ever build into your life. And what they are is they are actions. There are things that we do that promote our own spiritual health, that connect us to the vine. I I really appreciate the emphasis of of a guy whose name is Don Whitney. He's written a lot about spiritual disciplines, wrote a really important book on it a bunch of years ago. And here's what he says. He says, spiritual disciplines are activities. They are not attitudes. Disciplines are practices. Spiritual disciplines are things you do. They are not character qualities. They are not graces. They are not the fruit of the Spirit. They are things that you do. Did that sound redundant to you? It did to me too. But I just want to really carry that message home. There are things that you do. And what that means then is that abiding in Christ will involve taking part in certain activities and making these activities a daily priority 
in your life. And these routines, when they're built into our days, put us in a position where we are much more likely to experience God's presence and his help and his life and all of those things that he has that he wants to trickle down into our hearts. So what then are these activities? Well, they they break down into three different categories, and, and fortunately, thankfully, they're very simple. I'll list them for you. The first of these activities is listening to God's voice. That's the first big category of spiritual discipline. We've got to hear God's voice in our lives. It's it's part of how we abide. And, And this is primarily experienced through reading the Bible and meditating on it or or just reflecting on it, thinking about it. And and that's it. That's the first one. It's pretty simple. Listening to God's voice. The, The second category is having God's ear. Not only do we need to listen to God, but we've got to also cultivate the habit of talking back to God. And this is mainly just experiencing and building a habit of prayer. You've got listening to God's voice. You've got having his ear. And then thirdly, the last one is belonging to God's people. Okay, This is just cultivating uh, Christian friendships through uh, a, a church family. And and it's mainly participation in the local church. So you've got those three things, listening to God's voice, having God's ear, and belonging to to God's people. And and that's it. That's pretty much all I want to say this morning. That is how we guard the line. Now, I want to give you one last quote, and then I want to give you uh, just a real quick way that you can apply this in your own life that I hope will be super helpful to you. The quote is from a man whose name was J.C. Ryle. He was a pastor that taught during the 1800s. He was born before that war in 1812. And, and just because he's you know, an old guy who wrote something, he's got a lot of street cred here. Okay, So we should listen to this. This is pretty good. Here's what he says. He says, the means of grace, which is just another way of, of saying the spiritual disciplines, okay, the habits of grace. He calls them the means of grace are such as Bible reading, private prayer, and regular worshiping God in church. I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress in sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is, is spiritual growth. Right? It's growing. It's, it's being fruitful. It's enjoying your, your relationship with God. He says, no one who is careless about these three things should ever expect to make much progress in that area. I can find, he says, no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. They are the appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which he has begun in the inward man. Let men call this legal doctrine if they please. Okay, and and what he means by that is that some people are going to say, this is legalism. Because you're you're, you're saying that if I just do these things, then growth will always happen. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that the spiritual disciplines will guarantee that you will grow, grow, because you've got to do those things with a certain attitude. You can't just go to them to check off the box every morning. But what he's saying is that the neglect of them is a guarantee that you will not. So he says, let men call this legal doctrine if they please, but I will never shrink from declaring my belief 
that there are no spiritual gains without pain. Our God is a God who works by means, and he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without pain. That's a real quote to take to heart. Now, here's how I want to apply this today. I want to give you an invitation. Okay, I, I just bought this book right here. Uh, it's a book by a guy named David Mathis. It's called Habits of Grace. Uh, the subtitle is Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines. And I've only read a part of it. I, I had my bookmark. It was only, only about to there. But I like it so far. It, it's not the best book on this subject that I've ever read. But I'll tell you what I really like about it is it's very short. It's very succinct. It's easy to read. He uses good scripture within it so we can see what God thinks. And then he applies it well, and, and he really makes it practical. And, and what he does in the book is he just takes those three categories that we talked about, and he's got a section on each of those categories, and then like two or three or four chapters underneath each category that are very short. Most of them you can read in, in five or, or, or ten minutes. And I've, I've just found that it's helpful. I think it's one of those books that it would be impossible not to get some help out of or encouragement if you were to read it. So here's my application this morning. I'm starting a book club. I'm starting my own book club. This is going to be a really puny book club because it's only going to last for like two months and it's only going to be one book. Okay, It's going to be this book. And what I would really like to do is I'd like to read this book with you. And, and so here's how I thought I could do that. I put a sheet out in the lobby there that you can give me your name and email address on if you would like to. Um, you can also put it on a Connect card. That one's for you, Helen. You can put it on a Connect card. You better be in the club, Helen. Um, you could teach the club. You could lead the club. Um, what was I talking about? Sign up in the lobby, yeah. You can sign up in the lobby, or you can put it on a Connect card. You can email me. You can... You can Put your name on a piece of paper and give it to me. You can call me, whatever you want to do. If you do that, I'm going to send you an email later this week with a link to buy the book. And I'm also going to arrange somehow for us to meet three times over the next couple of months, like once every three weeks. All you need to do is show up having read that section, and we'll just talk about it and see what we're learning and encourage one another. And I think it's going to be great. If it's me and one other person, it'll be great. But I would love for all of us to participate in that. So feel invited to that. The last thing I'm going to say is this. If you were to call me and ask me, what is the one thing that you could do that would, that would really help your relationship with the Lord and, and, and would really help it to be life-giving and vital and valuable to you, the thing that I would say is start these habits. Invest in these habits. It's going to be hard at first, but they're like a fine wine. Once you develop the taste for them, they're, they're, they're so helpful and life-giving and, and, and beautiful. And I just encourage you to make those things a part of your life every day. Discipleship is a life of daily abiding. And, and if you learn how to do that, if you learn how to build those habits into your life, what you will find is that God will produce inside of you tremendous fruit. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you this morning for this church. I, I thank you of all of these people, for all of these people who I love so much and, and appreciate so much. And I pray this morning that you would do good work in their hearts and in their lives. And I know that um, by your grace, you don't just do that work automatically. Uh, that work doesn't appear out of thin air. But as J.C. Ryle said, you, you have these means of doing good work in, in our lives. And you invite us to walk closely with you and to listen to your voice and to talk with you and to meet with your people so that that sustenance from the vine can be ours. And I just pray that every person in here would experience the joy of that and that you would help them to consider how they might build these patterns into their lives so that they can enjoy walking closely with you. Thank you that you've made a way for us in that. Thank you that you enjoy the time that is spent with us. Thank you that you're a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine, certainly far more than we ever deserve. You're a God who loves us with no strings attached, and we thank you that your son paid our price so that we could experience that love fully and completely. And we thank you for this time we've had as we continue to worship and Joe and the team leads us. We pray that you would help us to bring our hearts to you and love you as the first priority in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.